afternoon. Thank you for having me today. Now, every person has some sense of justice. We, even in our fallen condition, even in a broken world, as fuzzy as it might get sometimes, we have an innate sense of right and wrong. And you can look no further than children to tell you this. My children, if I give one child a piece of candy and don't give a piece of candy to the other child, what are they going to say to me? It's not fair. They understand that there's something right and there's something wrong about that. I remember being a kid and I remember getting in trouble for something that my little brother had done. And I remember believing that some great wrong had been done to me. We carry this same sense of justice into our legal system when we see an innocent person convicted of a crime that they didn't commit or someone who gets away with a crime that they did commit off some sort of technicality. We want to see real justice prevail. There's a New York nonprofit called the Innocence Project, and uh, they've come along and they're pushing DNA testing and trying to reopen old cases uh, and have actually helped exonerate over a hundred men who've been falsely accused of crime. Uh, men like Andre Hatchett, who spent 25 years in jail for a murder that he didn't commit. We have this sense of justice. We want to see rights be right. We always see wrongs be righted. And so since we have this sense of justice, Good Friday should make us pause and reflect on the death of Jesus. And we see this in 1 Peter 2, verses 24 through 25, or 22 through 25, where it says that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 22 tells us that Jesus never sinned, that he did not commit one action that violated God's commands. There was not one sin of omission, not a single stray thought that veered away from perfect love, trust, and obedience to the Father. This was more than not doing bad things, that Jesus in all ways delighted in God. Further, it says that neither was deceit found in his mouth. So Jesus never lied. He, he never misled anyone. He perfectly spoke the truth of God. Jesus, when we look at this passage, when we read the Gospels, did nothing to deserve the death that he died. And the striking element of this passage is the way that Jesus responded to his mistreatment. Jesus was even sinless in how he responded. He had every reason and every opportunity to lash out against those who crucified him. By our very definition of justice, we believe he would be justified in doing so. But verse 23 says, but when he was reviled, when he was mocked and abused and had hateful words thrown at him, he did not revile in return. He was silent before his accusers. When he suffered, 
He did not threaten or give them what they deserved. And the type of suffering we're seeing here in Jesus' death was brutal. He was beaten and scourged, nails driven through his hands and his feet. Isaiah 52, looking forward to the suffering servant, describing what Jesus' death would be like, said that Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. And he took it. But here's the real kicker. Here's the real aspect of justice that we have to come face to face with on Good Friday is that Jesus did not deserve that, but we did. The greatest injustice in human history was the wrongful conviction and execution of Jesus Christ. He who was innocent and committed no crime suffered and died for those who were guilty so that we could be exonerated. No one in this room can say that they are without sin. No one in this room can say that deceit has never come from their, from their lips. When we look at the death of Jesus, it is simply unfair. So why would Jesus, who was innocent, bear the sins of us who are guilty? It says because he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And herein lies the scandal of the gospel. In the death of the only innocent man to ever live, sinners like you and I can be forgiven of sin. God used the greatest injustice in human history to execute his justice. Tom Schreiner says that God's justice includes both the vindication of his servant and the punishment of his enemies. So in the cross, sin is paid for and justice is served. So Jesus is vindicated. And he is our king. And, and every person's sin will be given their just punishment. Either your sins were put upon Jesus, or you will bear the punishment for your sins, but justice will be served. Even those who drove the nails into Jesus' hands and feet could be forgiven if they had turned in repentance and trusted Jesus. On Good Friday, the mercy and the justice of God collide at the cross. The love and the wrath of the Lord both clearly displayed as Jesus bore our sins in order that we may be forgiven. So we have received a great salvation. And the work on the cross has set us free. And so verses 24 and 25 actually show us three ways that Jesus has saved us, or three things from which Jesus has saved us. Firstly, Jesus saved us from the penalty of sin. As we look at verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus took your sin upon himself. He who was sinless bore it. He carried it to the cross. And so Jesus went to the cross as our substitute. The verse says that he bore our sin in his body. So Jesus took our sin and everything that comes with that, including the penalty that our sin deserves. He got our sin and we get his righteousness. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the Old Testament, we see the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And on that day, the high priest would take two male goats 
And they would bear the penalty of the sin of the people of Israel. And so one goat would be taken and it would be killed. It would be sacrificed to pay for the sins of the people. But then the high priest would take the second goat and he would put his hands on the sides of the head of of the goat and he would confess aloud the sins of the people. He would confess everything that had been done and then they would drive that goat out into the wilderness. That's where we get the term scapegoat from. And so what exactly is going on here? The first goat was the propitiation or the payment for sin. The atonement for sin. The sin had been washed away. And this is typically what we think of when we think of Jesus paying the penalty of our sin. He removes our guilt. It's as if we're standing in a courtroom and all charges have been dropped. But, but there's more. The second goat was the expiation of our sin, the removal of our shame. That the shame of the people was driven far from them. And so when Jesus pays the penalty of our sin, he not only takes our guilt, but he also takes our shame. This means that you're not only saved or you're not only free from the guilt and the shame of the sin that you've committed, but any sin that's ever been committed against you, that shame has been removed as well. Jesus sets you free from the penalty of sin, from your guilt and shame. And that means two things for us. Firstly, it means that we have nothing to prove. That God is not impressed by your good deeds. He's not impressed by what you can, you can do for him because he's done everything for you. You're innocent because of the work of Jesus. And secondly, it means that you're known and you're loved by God. Sometimes we come before the Lord and we, we know the gospel. We know that our sins are forgiven, but we carry the shame of what we've done. Jesus has taken that shame and the Bible says that we can approach the throne of God with boldness. God knows you and he wants you. Not only has Jesus saved you from the penalty of sin, but Jesus is saving us from the power of sin. Jesus died to free us completely from sin, not just from sin's penalty, but from sin's power over us. God wants us to walk in the freedom that we've received in Jesus. And so notice here in verse 24 why it says that Jesus bore our sin. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Church, that is incredible grace. The work of Jesus intends for us to die to our sin, to increasingly see sin lose its grip and power over our hearts and lives. Jesus began this work in us and he intends to complete it and see it through to the end. And so between the point at which God gave you a new heart and the point at which he calls you home, he is increasingly overcoming the power of sin in your life. I'm not sure how many of you watch HGTV, but it seems like there's a new fixer-upper type show on TV every week. But Chip and Joanna Gaines are the originals. They, they come in and they find these old houses and they, they buy them and they renovate them. They flip them, they fix them up, and then they sell those homes. But nobody would watch that show if they just bought old houses and then left them alone to rot, would they? I'm pretty sure the show would just go off the air. And much like those old houses, when 
God bought us with the blood of Jesus, he had no intention of leaving us alone. He wants to restore us and make us new and fix and restore what is broken in us by sin. Jesus does this so that we may live to righteousness, that we would increasingly love, trust, and obey Jesus in all that we do. That we would live a life pleasing to Him. But for many of us, we're left looking at this verse and we see words like live to righteousness and we say, I want that life, but I just can't stop doing the first part. I just can't stop sinning. Have you ever felt helpless and longed to see sin defeated in your life, but you just can't seem to do it? Jesus saves us from the power of sin by doing two things, by changing two things in us. And it's not primarily about what we do and what we don't do. He overcomes the power of sin in us by first changing what we love and secondly by changing where we look. He changes what we love. He changes the affections of our heart to find our joy and satisfaction in Him alone. And he changes what we look at so that instead of running to our sin to comfort us, we look to Jesus who has saved us. The beauty of Good Friday is that the same gospel that saved us from the penalty of sin is the same gospel that saves you from the power of sin. And he changes us and he saves us from the power of sin by causing us to remember what Jesus has done for us. That he changes what we love and where we look for hope. And we remember the good news that the sin I committed yesterday is no less paid for than the sin I committed 20 years ago. And we can cling to the first John 2 promise that says, when we sin. Notice it doesn't say if we sin. But when we sin, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. We can cry with Paul in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this life of this, this body of death, the gospel says Jesus will. And in him, we overcome the power of sin. And as you gaze upon Jesus, you grow in your love for him. Because you see that he's lovely. You grow in your trust of him because you realize again and again he's trustworthy. You grow in your obedience to him because you realize that the Lord is good. But our hope also looks to the future. Lastly, Jesus will save us from the presence of sin. Verse 25 gives us an incredible promise. God looks over us as our shepherd. We were straying away like sheep and Jesus has returned us to God. Jesus is the good shepherd and overseer of our souls. And he has called us to himself to love us and protect us and see us through to the end. John 10 says that Jesus is the good shepherd and that he loses none of his sheep. He's faithful to see us through. The hope we have in Christ is that the work of our salvation extends all the way into eternity future where one day we will be with God forever and there will be no more sin and there will be no more death where our faith will finally become sight. 
Jesus will save us from the presence of sin. And we will see this. He'll see us through to the day, that day because we belong to him. This is why the old Belgic confession began by stating that our only hope in life and death is that we belong to God. And because we belong to God, and because he loses none of his sheep, we can confidently look forward to that day with present hope. The penalty has already been paid. The power of sin will one day be silenced forever. I have a friend in in Reykjavik, Iceland, named Gunnar, which is the most Icelandic name ever. His name is Gunnar Gunnarsson. I mean... I mean, there you go. You can't get any more Icelandic than that. And, and uh, he's a pastor in Iceland. And he, uh, I actually met Gunnar on a, a mission trip last year. He's one of two evangelical pastors in the entire country of Iceland. Over 300,000 people. And Gunnar's not had an easy life. He came to faith uh, later in life by actually listening to a John Piper podcast because there's, there was no church in Iceland at the time that believed the gospel. And so he's had a hard life. He, had, he became a Christian and said, well, we need to go to church somewhere, so I guess I'm going to start a church because there isn't one. Um, his first son, Mikhail, was born with severe autism, may never speak, and about a year ago was diagnosed with leukemia. Has another little girl named Sigaros. And then last summer, Gunnar and his wife, Svava, they, they find out that they're pregnant again, and there's great joy, but then as the, as the ultrasounds begin to come in, there, there's some concern. And the original concern was that the baby's esophagus was not attached to his stomach. And this was going to mean some very painful surgery upon the baby arriving. And so a few days ago, they gave birth to this beautiful little boy named Solomon Levy. And it turns out that his esophagus was attached. And I wish I could say that the, that the, that the end of the story was that their faith saw them through and that God did a miracle, but that's not exactly what happened. There was a bigger problem. He was limp. He wasn't moving. He wasn't moving his extremities. They go and take brain scans and find out that his brain is abnormally small and surrounded by fluid. And so my friend is shook by this video, this news. And, and, and so on Wednesday, Gunnar posts a video giving an update about his son. He's had hundreds of people at this point contacting him, asking him if he's okay and he goes to this video and he, he starts talking about his son and he's mourning and he's talking about just the grief he has. And then he turns to his hope in Jesus and he quotes Romans 8.28. That God works out all things. God works out abnormally small brains and a possible life of paralysis for our good and his glory. He clung to Jesus in the midst of this, in the midst of having one son with leukemia in one building of the hospital, his other son in another building with his wife, and his daughter with grandparents. And he said that God never promised a life without struggle, but calls us to worship in the midst of the struggle. Why can Gunnar cling to God in this? Because his hope is in a day where he will no longer be in the presence of sin. That there will be no more sickness. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. And we can live by faith and trust that promise now no matter what happens. Jesus has saved you from the penalty of sin. 
He is saving you from the power of sin. And he will save us from the presence of sin. On this Good Friday, let us rejoice in what God has done for us in Christ, where Jesus bore our sins. And let us look forward to Sunday when we celebrate our resurrection hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who bore our sin. We thank you that we no longer bear the guilt and the shame that sin brings, but that you gave that and put that on your son. And so that we can stand before you, Lord, Lord as people who are, who are free, who are innocent and without shame. Let us rejoice and live out of that hope. Lord, we thank you that you are working in our lives to overcome the power of sin in us, that we may live to your glory. And Lord, let us look forward to the day where we will stand before you and we will spend eternity with you, worshiping you. And let that give us hope here and now. We pray this in your name. Amen. Stephen, thank you so much for sharing from God's word uh, today. Well, church, thank you for gathering uh, for these few minutes together. And let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we're dismissed. And Lord God, we do um, thank you today that you have purchased us. Lord, that we belong to you, that we stand in Christ and with Christ and have been robed in the righteousness of Christ. Lord, what, what reason to rejoice that we have today. Lord, help us to do so. Remind us of these truths. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray for Stephen and his family. I pray for Emmanuel Church as they gather this evening for the Good Friday service. Lord, I pray that you would do uh, a mighty work among them, that you would speak to them, that your spirit would be felt among them, that your word would be proclaimed. Father, we pray for uh, this church and Emmanuel Church and other churches across this city that gather on Sunday morning. Father, we pray that you would uh, fill um, our, our gatherings with people who don't know you. And Father, we pray that your spirit would speak, that the gospel would be clear. We pray that people would respond and turn to Jesus for salvation. Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We look forward to Sunday. Help us to do so with great anticipation and eagerness and a spirit of worship. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray and ask these things. Amen.